North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's getting $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to boys and girls clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10. Blog Talk Radio. Well, hello, everyone. It's Dr. Lowe, Dr. Lauren Noel, coming at you from San Diego, California. You tune in to Dr. Lowe Radio. Thanks for the listens and the support for the show. So great to have you guys once again. Hey, if you guys caught last week's show, I know that you loved it. It was freaking awesome. If you missed it, definitely check it out. It was called, So You Want to Be an N.D.? And if you guys know anyone who is interested in being a naturopathic doctor or looking into naturopathic medicine as a job, it is the show to listen to. It was really, really inspiring. I got a lot of really great feedback for the show, so pass on that that link. Any of the shows, any of the previous shows, you can listen to in the iTunes library. You can also catch them on my website on drlaurennoel.com. That's D-R-L-A-U-R-E-N. N-O-E-L.com. And I have, I think, 80-plus shows now. You can listen to any of the shows. They're all recorded for you. You don't have to catch them live. And lots of really great life-changing information there for you. Tonight's show is all about the brain and specifically how gluten affects the brain. Did you know that gluten sensitivity, it doesn't always show up as digestive issues like constipation and diarrhea and on and on. You can actually have a full-blown gluten sensitivity and have none of those symptoms, in fact. And the most common symptom of gluten sensitivity is brain fog and brain issues. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight and what to do about them. And there's really nobody better who could join me on this topic than Dr. Thomas O'Brien. Dr. Tom is just incredible. He's a good friend. He's local here in North County, San Diego. So I get to see him more than just, you know, on the airwaves. So it's great to have him on the show again. Uh, before I introduce uh, or go into his bio, he's been on the show three times. You guys know him. But for those of you who, who don't, I will read his bio again. Um, but mark your calendar for the next couple of shows. So next week's show, it's going to be also related to the brain, but it's going to be a little more beyond the, the, the brain effects with gluten. Um, I'm going to be having Dr. Detis Karazian on the show, and he's written the new book, Why Isn't My Brain Working? And so that's going to go beyond gluten into some other things regarding the brain. So the next couple of weeks are going to be all about the brain. So it'll be really, really great stuff. And the following week, I'm going to do actually um, a show on Wednesday that, that day. Keep, um, keep in the loop for the times. If you guys want to uh, join my newsletter list, I can give you a, kind of a heads up of when the show is going to be that week. But I'm having Allison Armstrong on the show, and she's the creator of the company called PAX. And she does um, basically training for women, learning about men. It's all about relationships, and it is life-changing information. And it and she provides education for women to learn more about their husbands, about their sons, about their fathers, their brothers, all about the men in your life and how you can support them in being just completely men and not emasculate them and cutting their balls off, basically. Because we do that. We like to emasculate our men for some reason. We do that as women nowadays. And so she provides a really amazing education on how to let your man thrive and how to fully be you as a woman. So um, definitely check that out. Her website is understandmen.com if you want to just look up some of her work and uh, just get a little familiar, familiarized with what she does. It's a truly, truly amazing stuff. It's made a big difference for me and my relationship especially. <laughs> so um, those are the next couple of shows. And in the future, we're also going to do a show on Chinese medicine and acupuncture, um, specifically around fertility. So that's going to be a great one. And just lots of really great shows coming up this this um this summer. So let's see. If you're not a fan of the Facebook page, definitely do do so. Facebook.com slash Dr. Lowe Noel. And on the Twitter, Twitter.com slash Dr. Lauren Noel. And I think that's it for announcements, pretty sure. Um, if you guys didn't get my newsletter today, I am really, really sore. I just started doing CrossFit for the first time. I know it's crazy because I'm like, you know, like one of the paleo doctors and I've been doing paleo for like years and still haven't gotten into CrossFit and I finally drank the Kool-Aid or the kombucha as they say. And I've, um, in my, I'm in my third week now of, of uh, CrossFit and it's freaking brutal. I'm sore, but it's great. I've, I'm really, really loving it and um, definitely seeing some results already. So it's pretty great stuff. Um, so I will give you guys the updates of how things unfold. But I'm really committing to three months of it. I know you got to you know, do it more than just, I don't know, a couple of weeks. And I totally get that. So I'm going to post some before and after photos. I'm really, like, super motivated to make this thing just really, 
really, you know, effective. Um, but I can like barely walk right now. <laughs> so hopefully it gets easier. I'm sure it will. Um, all right. That's about what's new for me. Let's, uh, let's jump into the show. So Dr. Thomas O'Brien, he is an internationally recognized speaker and workshop leader specializing in gluten sensitivity and celiac disease. He is known as the Sherlock Holmes for chronic disease and metabolic disorders. He's a clinician par excellence in treating chronic disease and metabolic disorders from a functional medicine perspective. He holds teaching faculty positions with the Institute for Functional Medicine and the National University of Health Sciences. Dr. O'Brien is always one of the most respected, highly appreciated speakers. His passion is in teaching the many manifestations of gluten sensitivity and celiac disease as they occur inside and outside of the intestines. Dr. O'Brien, thank you so much for being on the show, and welcome back to Dr. Low Radio. Dr. Lauren, it's great to be with you. Thank you. What a great uh, introduction to the show. I'm so glad to hear that you've done the PACS training and wish that every woman in the world would do it. Oh, wow, I didn't know that you were into it. How cool is that? Yes. <laughs> Too many guys are out there who um, would would reap the benefits of um, having a better understanding of how, how guys function. <laughs> and, and just Kudos knowing about the different phases. You know, it's, what's amazing is men, men are so fascinating. I mean, after I did the course with, with Allison, I was just fascinated. I looked at men, like, in a whole new way, and just getting how – how men go through different stages of their life. And if you catch a man in, in one of his earlier stages and expecting him to settle and to get married, it's just not going to happen. You know, it's like no matter, it doesn't matter if you are like, you know, if you walk on, on water, it doesn't matter if he's not in the, in not, not in the stage and he's not in the stage. So it's so liberating and it's just, it's such an amazing education for women to oh, take. Oh, it's marvelous, yes. And also, also <laughs> if, the guy, if the guy does do it and he's not ready, it won't last. Exactly. Yep. And there's nothing wrong yeah. with him. He's just he's right. in his adventure phase, you know? <laughs> right. Right. There yeah. you go. Gosh, I mean, could you imagine if everyone took that kind of education, just the the number of divorces that could be prevented and <laughs> just heartache. Oh, and... that would be marvelous, isn't it? If both men and women took courses to understand the other sex and not just treat them like yeah. we think they they are, you know. And, exactly. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, women women see men as hairy versions of women, right? And men see women as just really emotional, crazy men. <laughs> well, that, that, I'm not sure about that. I'd say men see, let's see, women see men as hairless women, right? As, as hairy is, women. Is you, I think, as yeah, hairy, hairy women. Hairy Good, women. as hairy women, all right. And men see women, well, I'd say uh, uh, as hairless women, you know, men. Uh, well, this is not what our show is supposed to be about. But um, yeah, <laughs> you know, guys, guys, guys want sex, and women <laughs> want to be recognized as a value, and you know, um, smart and and desired, and not necessarily um, the s- same priorities as men have. Men have most men have the same priority to begin with, usually. Mm-hmm. That's that's my experience. Yeah, and and I know we will get to the topic we're supposed to talk about tonight. Yes, we will. But I, I promise. One thing I really, I promise. Yeah, I promise. I promise. Um, one thing I've really learned is that men really want to make women happy, like really okay. want to make their woman happy. We want, they want to provide, they want to protect, they want to make them happy, and and oftentimes we just don't let that ever be possible for them. It's like, yeah, sorry, yes. not going to happen. I make myself happy. I don't need you. You know. <laughs> right, right, and uh, and women do things like CrossFit and get buff and. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't resist. Excuse me. I want to be able to. I want to bench press my boyfriend. That's the goal. I'm there kidding. you go. Oh, that's cool. I like that. <laughs> yeah, I can't even do one pull up yet. So we'll. Yeah, yeah I have a long way to go. It won't be long. Won't, won't be long, be I'm long. sure. Yeah. So how how's it going for you? What's how's your day been today? Oh, it's going very well. Thank you. Um, uh, extremely well. We um, um, are working on a big project uh, coming up in the fall and an, an educational project and and uh, uh, putting the pieces together now, and perhaps we can talk about it later. But anyway, you know, uh, having a large project that I, I've never done a project that, uh, that takes five months of preparation, but wow. now I know what that's like, and, you know, we've got a big team working on it with me, and uh, uh, our goal is to educate the um, entire planet, actually, as, as many people mm-hmm. as we can reach in the English language on um, 
gluten-related disorders with or without celiac disease. So I'll be talking mm. about that a lot more with you, and hopefully we can make some announcements on your show when it's ready to go. Uh, Absolutely. But tonight's talk is, tonight's talk, at least what you asked me for, was how gluten may affect the brain, especially in kids. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, I'd love to just kind of mosey in there if we can. I kind of directed you in the wrong direction. I'm sorry to start with, but no. it's so interesting it's, to hear what, what you're doing. It's great. Yeah, and, you know, I think most people really think of gluten as a gut-related issue. They think, okay, if I don't have constipation, diarrhea, bloating, gas, none of that, then, hey, I don't have a gluten issue, and it's just not the case. In fact, it's more significant to be affecting other body systems than than the digestive tract. So tell us a little bit bit about that and how that actually shows up outside of the gut. Well, that's actually correct, and uh, the studies are very clear and surprisingly consistent. Uh, when they've looked at that, and they they use celiac disease as the main emphasis for most of the studies, and we'll differentiate between celiac and non-celiac gluten sensitivity, but for now, um, there are over 19,000 studies on celiac disease, so that's what I'm going to reference here for this, and that is Mm -hmm. that for every one celiac that has gut-recognizable symptoms, they feel it, Whatever the symptom is, whether it's diarrhea or bloating or gas or constipation or abdominal pains or cramping, for every one that has symptoms they recognize in the gut, there are eight that have no symptoms in the gut. And their symptoms Mm -hmm. are somewhere else. Their symptoms are chronic fatigue. They're just dragging in life or brain function uh, or thyroid dysfunction. So the ratio is eight to one. For every one in the gut, there are eight that have symptoms somewhere else in the body and not in the gut. And it turns out that clinically what we've seen, and uh, studies are confirming the prevalence of this, and that is that when gluten sensitivity, with or without celiac disease, affects the brain, that's a primary organ system that's affected. It's not secondary. It, It may be secondary to the gut, meaning you get the gut problem first and then your brain starts acting up or acting down, whatever the symptoms are, but it doesn't have to be secondary. It can be primary itself. You eat gluten, you've got brain fog within 30 minutes is a very common symptom within 30 minutes to an hour, and there's no noticeable gut changes. So the ratio Hmm. is 8 to 1, gut to somewhere else in the body. Hmm, Amazing. So I'm I've been really 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 clean with the paleo diet especially the last like 3 weeks. I'm going to do like full 3 months of just super super clean eating. And last night I ended up getting some some curry, some pinning curry with some duck and extra broccoli at a at a Thai restaurant. And today I had the worst brain fog ever. And and according to my knowledge, I thought that curry was totally in the clear. Is there something well, the thing, that that could be in there that would be suspect? Oh, absolutely, you? absolutely, and um, that's a really good example for your listeners to hear, because you can't make assumptions anymore. That many chefs will throw a little flour in to thicken up anything. Uh, as a matter of fact, I found out about nine months ago. I had it confirmed, and since then we've had three restaurants where this has been confirmed, and I've probably been in six or seven. Japanese restaurants, but in three of them, they put flour in their sushi rice. Mm. So you can't even assume that a rice dish anymore is gluten-free. You have to ask. Mm -hmm. uh, And when you ask the waiter, the waiter will probably look at you like you're crazy or something. Say, please ask the chef. You have to look him in the eye and say, please ask the chef if there's any flour in any of the products that I'm ordering because I have a sensitivity or in, for for the general public, you say, I have an allergy to gluten. Mm-hmm. Please ask the chef. And you must do that because there's no question in my mind, the likelihood is very high in that Thai restaurant, they threw a little flour in there to thicken it up. Yeah. Uh, and and you're, you're reacting to that. Or it could be a flavoring. If they don't make their curry from scratch and they use powdered curry mix, and many restaurants mm-hmm. use packaged sauces and things, they often use flour or wheat starch in there to hold it together. So you mm-hmm. have to ask. and You just have to ask. And the more people who will do that, I mean, if a, um, a waiter gets three questions a night from their tables, is there any gluten in any of your products that I'm ordering? And there's five waiters or waitresses in the restaurant, that chef is going to get the message <laughs> Really quick, time for a gluten-free right. menu. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, and, 
And when restaurants have gluten-free menus, then you're in the clear, or you're at least more likely to be in the clear, not to get an inadvertent exposure. Yeah, and it's it's popping up all over San Diego. I mean, we just went to a restaurant, a pretty conventional restaurant, I thought, on Saturday night, and they had a whole gluten-free menu. So obviously people are asking about it because it makes a huge difference. Exactly right, exactly right. And I'd like to encourage all of your listeners to ask the question, you know, some people feel awkward. They think, you know, excuse me, I don't mean to make a mess, or, you know, and and, and but if you if you have the um, question come up in your mind, ask the question, and by asking the question, you're helping so many others in the future. You know, the the hundredth monkey principle that eventually mm-hmm. is going to cause a turning point and. Because it's so very common, and so back to the topic, yes, brain symptoms are extremely common, and uh, the most common uh, uh, presenting complaints in a doctor's office with gluten sensitivity. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the psychiatric disorders that are associated with gluten sensitivity or celiac? Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Um, The question really could be which ones are not. And there are none that I know of that have been not associated with it. Um, the the um, list, um, schizophrenia, directly associated with celiac disease. There are many, many studies on schizophrenia and gluten sensitivity, actually with or without celiac disease. It doesn't have to be celiac. And the more recent studies are showing non-celiac gluten sensitivity. Uh, and what does that mean? That means if you have a family member that's been diagnosed with um, uh, schizophrenia and they're seeing specialists and hopefully you know, receiving the right medications and functioning better, it may be your family member. Um, and there's no telltale signs to differentiate between someone that has a brain diagnosis caused by a gluten sensitivity and someone that has a brain diagnosis for other reasons. There's no way to tell. Um, They're identical Mm. in their presentations, identical in neurotransmitter levels that may be depleted, in the lack of blood flow in specific areas of the brain called hypoperfusion. They're identical. There's no way to tell. So the message, if there's a takeaway message at the end of the day here, it would be um, anytime you have a brain-related symptom, just ask Mm -hmm. the question, might this be associated with a gluten sensitivity? If we just ask the question, um, people will be surprised how often it is a, um, the answer is by the doctors, well, actually, surprisingly, Mrs. Patient, yes, it is. There is a gluten mm-hmm. sensitivity here. So, uh, but back most to doctors would not say that, right? Most doctors wouldn't say that. Even like neurologists, for example, aren't always even considering this as a factor, right? Well, that's our job is to educate them, isn't it? That's really our job because here's an yeah. example. Children with drug-resistant epilepsy. What does that mean? Drug-resistant epilepsy means you have a child that has seizures and they've been to um, two neurologists, maybe three, and the drugs that they've tried just don't work. They, and the, your child is still getting seizures. And they're ter- you know, it's terrible to see your child having a seizure and there's nothing you can do. Children with drug-resistant epilepsy, 50% of them, go into remission on a gluten-free diet, meaning they don't get seizures anymore on a gluten-free diet, 50% of them. Now, why don't our neurologists know that and just check to see if this child with um, seizures um, has a gluten sensitivity? Why don't our neurologists know that? It's because that study was in the Journal of Gastroenterology, mm. and the neurologists don't read gastroenterology journals. Right. So they, they wouldn't know, you know. But 50% of the children, I mean, that's unbelievably high that have that. Mm-hmm. Um, other brain symptoms, um, depression, and uh, the studies vary. And the study that comes to mind right now, 63, no, 68% of celiacs uh, classify, uh, would pass for the diagnosis of depression when they answer questionnaires. Mm-hmm. 73% of them would pass for anxiety. I mean, mm. it's, the, the prevalence is unheard of. With uh, attention deficit, there is a study that came out where they took um, 132 children, who uh, celiac children who have been diagnosed with attention deficit, 132 of them. They put them all on a gluten-free diet. Every single child or the parent reported improvements in all 12 DSM-IV markers 
of attention deficit within six months. Every child, every marker from fa uh, fails to pay attention, um, disrupts the class, uh, blurts out answers. All 12 categories improved in every child on a gluten-free mm. diet. What would happen if that was a drug? Oh. If it could be on the front page of every paper in the country. Yeah, no kidding. What yeah. I love about that study is that it was for six months. They didn't just try it for two weeks and say, oh, it didn't work. They, they actually gave exactly. it some time. It's a good point. <laughs> Really good point. That's absolutely right. And uh, you, sometimes you get dramatic results quickly, and everyone wants dramatic results, of course. But sometimes yeah. uh, it just takes more time. Yeah. And it's it's really it's incredible. I mean, the some of the most common symptoms I see in my practice is anxiety and depression. I mean, these are yes. what people are feeling. Most people are feeling this nowadays. I mean, that's why people are so hooked on Starbucks and hooked on these uppers because they're just dragging. You know, they're just they're in a yes. fog, they're in a funk, and I think so much of it is related to what they're putting in their mouth. Oh, that's exactly right. Uh, it's it's environmental triggers that affect the brain. Remember, one quarter of the blood in our bodies at any one time is in the brain. Um, it uses mm -hmm. more of the components of the brain than any other tissue, so um, it gets it gets saturated much more than your kidneys do, or much more than your spleen does. You know, there's a lot larger concentrations, mm -hmm. and one main reason why is the environmental toxins we're exposed to. Why so many people are dragging is we're exposed to so many toxins every day. Everywhere you turn, you hear more about heavy metals, toxic chemicals, BPA in the drinking water. Um, it, you know, the list goes on and on, and the brain is so vulnerable to it. Now, one of the mechanisms that occurs, there's 13 mechanisms by which uh, gluten can affect the brain, but one of them is oftentimes, and um, Dr. Lowe, I know you've done these tests, if you run a test for gluten sensitivity, one of the markers it looks at is transglutaminase 6. Now, transglutaminase 6 is an enzyme that's a major component of the blood-brain barrier. So it's mm -hmm. fairly common that when you see antibodies elevated to gluten, you may also have antibodies of transglutaminase 6. Uh, somewhere around 15 to 20% of the time, those antibodies will be elevated. If you have elevated antibodies to transglutaminase 6, that means your immune system is attacking the blood-brain barrier. And many mm -hmm. of us have heard of leaky gut. Well, this is leaky brain. And when you have... Um, uh, that kind of inflammation in the blood-brain barrier, larger molecules get into the brain than what should be able to get in. And there's an immune system in the brain called the glial cells, and they're there just to protect the inside of the brain from anything getting in or that shouldn't. But now these molecules get in, these larger molecules called macromolecules, and then the glial cells get activated to destroy those invading macromolecules, whatever they are that shouldn't be in there because they're too big. And the result is you get inflammation in the brain. And it's not bad for a day or so, but what about when you're eating something that you're sensitive to unknowingly, knowing that you're sensitive to it, and you're eating it twice a day, three times a day, every day? The amount of inflammation that accumulates in your brain is to the point to where you start damaging tissue, and then eventually, when enough tissue gets damaged, here come the symptoms. And the symptoms can be migraines, headaches, Brain fog, uh, fatigue of the brain, you just can't get it running, uh, attention deficit, autism, Asperger's, uh, schizophrenia, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's. There's papers in the medical literature on reversing Alzheimer's on a gluten-free diet. Now, that doesn't happen often, but there are some noted cases where it does happen, reversing Alzheimer's. Uh, I mean, the list just goes on and on. You asked about what brain conditions can there be. Well, peripheral neuropathies, uh, that's numbness and tingling, uh, can occur. Ataxia, which is difficulty with walking. Uh, elders who can't keep their balance very well. It's because antibodies in the brain, the inflammation in the brain, had damaged the cerebellum, that part of the brain that controls our walking. Epilepsy, anxiety, depression, schizophrenia, dementias. I've got a list that I just pulled up for you. Headaches. Mm -hmm. Uh, cerebral vasculitis, brainstem encephalitis, progressive multifocal leukal encephalopathies, uh, neuromyotonias, polymyositis, inclusion body myositis, all these very sophisticated 
uh, terms, they're great Scrabble words, by the way, to use. Yeah, what <laughs> absolutely. A, what a score if you can remember these words. But uh, <laughs> there are so many different ways, and all of those are brain dysfunction or brain diseases. And this comes from Columbia, uh, uh, the tertiary, that means the research center at Columbia University, where they listed uh, these neurological manifestations associated with celiac disease or gluten sensitivity. And that was the list they came up with. So any brain dysfunction may be associated with a sensitivity to gluten. Any brain dysfunction. There's none that may not. Mm. So amazing. So, so interesting. And all these conditions are on the rise, right? They are. They. Um, um, it's not that there's better testing. There is. And <laughs> so more people are accurately being identified but it's that more people are getting sicker. They've done some studies over 50 years, and they, they've had um, uh, frozen blood samples from 30, 40, 50 years ago, and they've checked them. How many of these people, of these 18 or 17,000 people, how many of these people have antibodies to gluten? And then they took a random, same number of people that they drew blood from today. This is at Mayo Clinic. And they looked at the same number of people. How many people here have elevated antibodies to gluten? And it's four times higher, fourfold mm. increase in the last 50 years in terms of uh, the immune system reacting to gluten. And it's, uh, there's a number of reasons for it, but the main one is, as I referenced earlier, we are being exposed to so many toxins, so many different types of toxins. It's critically important to know how to clean, keep your spark plugs clean, if you will, you know, to mm -hmm. detox a little bit, have foods that help keep your body clean. It's critically important because we cross a line. You cross a threshold, it's called loss of immune tolerance, and then boom, here come the symptoms. Uh, whatever the, my, my analogy is if you pull at a chain, it breaks at the weakest link. It's at one end, the middle, mm -hmm. the other end. It's your heart, your brain, your liver, your kidneys, wherever the weak link is on your chain. You pull, that's where it's going to break. And mm -hmm. so for so many people, gluten sensitivity is an issue, and it's on the rise fourfold higher in the last 50 years. Um, and you pull at that chain by eating gluten, and it's gonna, the chain's going to break wherever the weak link in your chain is, whether it's your brain. And very commonly, it's the brain that's affected. One reason, uh, as I mentioned, is because a quarter of the blood is sitting in the brain at any one time. Mm. Now, gluten addiction, we know that there are certain compounds um, you know, in gluten that can be that can kind of stimulate in the in the in the brain, similar to like what morphine was. Talk a little bit about how you can actually be addicted to gluten. You bet, you bet. Um, a receptor site is like a catcher's mitt. The pitcher throws the ball to the catcher, and receptor sites sit on the outside of our cells. And every hormone that our cells use, you know, it doesn't matter how much hormones in your bloodstream. It matters how much gets into the cells. Uh, every mm -hmm. uh, hormone that has to get into the cells to cause some action only gets into the cell by the door being opened to go into the cell. That door is a receptor site. So there are receptor sites for thyroid hormone, and estrogen will not go in a thyroid receptor site. Only thyroid goes into a re thyroid receptor site. There are receptor sites for estrogen and progesterone and testosterone and insulin and serotonin and melatonin. All of our cells have receptors for the hormones that have an, a, an effect on that cell. So there are receptor sites in the brain called the opiate receptors. It's normal. They're supposed to be there. They helped us survive, helped our ancestors survive. Uh, and the, the, one, the, the way that people may relate to it most is if you have deep belly laughter, you're laughing so hard that it hurts. You're just uh, you're just laughing with your friends and the jokes and whatever they are, whatever reason. And then when you stop, you're just and when you stop laughing and your belly stops hurting, you're just you know your eyes are brighter. The world's got a nice hue to it. You know we're happy, and that's because that deep belly laughter stimulated the production of some hormones in the brain called endorphins and enkephalins, and they are 200 times more powerful than morphine. And those endorphin hormones that your body produces, like estrogen hormone, the endorphin hormones go into endorphin receptor sites. They're called the opiate receptor sites. Because, and they, they got that name because opium binds to those same endorphin receptor sites. And so you feel good when you produce some endorphins. And it's what kept us going, kept our ancestors going at times when um, it was tough. 
uh, middle of the winter and there's not much food around. And how do you keep the motivation? How do you you need to stimulate those opiates a little bit, uh, uh, mm-hmm. producing some endorphins, and uh, that's that's one of the reasons why we have these receptor sites. So when you don't digest the gluten proteins very well that are in wheat, barley, and rye, you um, when proteins are digested, they're supposed to be broken down into tiny little molecules, almost like individual bricks of a brick wall. You know, if you think of digestion as getting the mortar off the bricks, each brick is called amino acid, and that's what we're supposed to absorb are these tiny little amino acids. But when you can't digest gluten very well, you can't get the mortar off the bricks of gluten, it's like someone took a sledgehammer to that wall and broke it into 17 brick clumps and 33 brick clumps. And those are called peptides, these different clumps of gluten protein fragments. One of the clumps that's commonly produced is called gluteomorphins. And gluteomorphins are called that because they will bind if they get into the brain, and the only way they get in is if there's blood-brain barrier leakage, which I talked about a little bit earlier, if they get into the brain, they bind to the opiate receptor sites. And you feel good when you eat um, bread. You say, you know, I don't need this. I just like it. It feels good to me. It tastes good. It's healthy for me. You know, that mm-hmm. we rationalize because we feel good when we eat the food that's stimulating our opiate receptor sites. And there are three categories of foods that are renowned. Well, two are renowned, and the third I'm going to throw in here because it's true and it's going to be an aha for a number of people. Gluten from wheat, rye and barley, that's one category. The other, and they produce gluteomorphins. Dairy produces casomorphins. So anything from the udder of a cow, uh, if it's not digested properly in the gut, it will produce, it's, it may produce casomorphins. And casomorphins, if they get into the brain from the bloodstream because of a leak in the blood-brain barrier, they bind to the opiate receptor sites the same way. And so I just love my cheese. People that say, mm-hmm. I love cheese. I just love my cheese. This is why they love their cheese for many, many of them. And it's a slight addiction. So those people, it's really wonderful to identify if they've got antibodies to gluteomorphins or casomorphins because you can give them a heads up ahead of time. You're going to feel pretty lousy for probably three to five days. It's temporary. Look me in the eye. It's temporary. It's okay. <laughs> it won't last. And you have to tell them that so they can they know it and they expect it. And they're going to feel lousy. They're going to feel withdrawal symptoms. They're going to really want their wheat or they're going to want their cheese. I can have one piece of pizza. You know, their mind's going to play all these games on them. So if we can educate them ahead of time well enough to know this is coming, see, here's the test results. You've got gluteomorphin antibodies, so your body's fighting hard against these gluteomorphins already. And so you're likely to go through withdrawal symptoms. They're, they're not dangerous. They're not going to harm you in any way. But you're not going to feel great uh, uh, to some degree for three to five days. But then it'll pass. Here's what you do. And in the meantime, what you tell your patients to do is everything docs know to keep their blood sugar stable so you don't put more taxing on the brain because of low blood sugar stimulating um, cortisol response, which activates more desire for opiates. So keep their blood sugar stable. Drink more water than usual. Keep flushing so that you have really good detoxing and good bowel function. Increase vitamin C to bowel tolerance. That's usually somewhere between 3 and 5 grams, depending on the doc in the office, what they want to do. And increase your antioxidants and eat at least a pound of vegetables a day, five different colors, because the vegetables stimulate good bacteria to develop in the gut. So there's this whole protocol that you do, but you give them a heads up ahead of time as to why that's happening. And so patients mm-hmm. understand, and you give them your handout, says here's what you do, and they follow those guidelines, and they're in great shape. Mm-hmm. And what was, what was the third food? You said there's another one that they can get addicted to? Oh, thank you, yes. Spicy foods, spicy things. Mm. Spices I thought you were going to say like, chocolate. <laughs> no, oh gosh, no, chocolate's really good for you. There's no problem with chocolate. <laughs> Amen. Dark chocolate, really high-quality dark chocolate. Is, I, I think everyone should have a little bit of dark chocolate every day. There are so many studies that show the benefit, but here's how you do it. And here's how you do it in a way that stabilizes your blood sugar instead of throwing it way out of balance. You only do one square of chocolate. Put it under your tongue. Don't let it touch your teeth. When you don't let it touch your teeth, it sits in there and it dissolves. It takes two to three minutes to dissolve. And in the dissolution process, the taste buds are carrying this message right up to the brain saying, chocolate's here. Chocolate. (laughs) 
chocolate. <laughs> you start stimulating the endorphins. Chocolate stimulates endorphin production, which binds to the opiate receptors, and that's why you feel good with chocolate. But if you have one square, you saturate your taste buds, and most people are done. And I tell yeah. my patients, if if you want more, have another square. But then you're not right. eating a bar. You're eating two <laughs> little squares of a bar. Right. And you feel saturated. You feel pleasurable. You feel full by it without the potential blood sugar problems. Mm. Interesting. And so spicy foods, you said, is another thing that people yes. can be addicted to. It, does it cause the same kind of brain effects as gluten and dairy, or it's just something that stimulates the same receptors? Spicy foods stimulate the opiate receptors. Um, I've never mm-hmm. seen a study about antibodies to spicy foods um, okay. or any type any type of um, uh, uh, peptide produced by them. But I've just the, the studies talk about how it stimulates the opiate receptors. So it's a healthier way of balancing out um, uh, opiate stimulation. O- opiate receptor stimulation is have spicy foods once in a while. And uh, find the flavors that you like, and you know people like it, and it keeps them, uh, it helps them to feel good. You're you're producing some endorphins. Hmm. Awesome. So the case of morphines that you're talking about in the dairy, I've I've heard that that doesn't necessarily exist in ghee. Is that true? Ghee or 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 even grass fed butter? Where where where's the jury out with that one? That is correct. Um, uh, case are not in ghee. The proteins have been taken out of ghee. Ghee is just the fat of the okay. um, uh, dairy molecules. So ghee is safe for most people with, with dairy sensitivity unless they have antibodies to milk butyrophilins. And if mm. they have those antibodies to milk butyrophilins, milk butyrophilins are the remnants of protein in the fat membrane of the fat globule in dairy. So if mm-hmm. you've got antibodies to those, those people can't have ghee. Mm, okay. Now, is that something that's tested in the Cyrex panel, or is that not included? That's in correct. Uh, that's okay. that's in uh, the the panel that looks at six different antibodies to dairy. Okay, I thought I saw that one there. Okay, good, yeah. very yeah. good. So, so I'm sure people are are listening. By the way, if you guys just tuned in, we're talking to Dr. Tom O'Brien all about gluten's effect on the brain. If you'd like to call and ask a question, the number is eight one eight. Four nine five six nine one nine. If you're in the switchboard already and you want to ask a question, go ahead and press one, and we'll bring you on the air. Um, so, so Doc, so I'm sure our listeners are wondering, okay, well, what should a complete gluten screen include? You know, what should they be asking their doctor for? So, what kind of testing oh, should they be should they be asking for? That's really good, and this is going to be for children over the age of two, and then we can talk about under two. Uh, but for mm-hmm. children over the age of two, their immune system has matured enough to where it will accurately identify if there is a problem if the tests are done, if the, if the proper test is done. So a little history on testing. The um, uh, standard test that's done for celiac disease looks at uh, um, an antibody called transglutaminase 2. And it's a very accurate test for celiac disease and very accurate. The... Um, uh, problem, and we don't want to get too technical about this, uh, but the problem is celiac disease is defined as your intestines are at the end stage of damage. So if you have the end stage of damage where your microvilli are worn down, the shags of the shag carpeting are completely worn down and you don't absorb very well and you get anemias or uh, osteoporosis or any other nutrient deficiency symptom, uh, when the shags are worn down, that celiac disease the blood test is extremely accurate, 98%, 100%. And all of the doctors that are doing that test do that test because they read the textbooks that say, if you have celiac disease, this test is 97 to 100% accurate. And the textbooks say that, and the research papers say that. And they're accurate. They're right on the money. The problem is those papers that showed the effectiveness of that test they bought the blood of celiac patients from the blood banks to run their their studies to prove how good the test was. And in order for a blood bank to buy the blood of the patient with celiac, they have to have a diagnosis of celiac. And the diagnosis of celiac means total villus atrophy. Your shags are completely worn down. So there's no Mm -hmm. partial villus atrophies or just the increased inflammation that starts the whole ballgame going. None of those kind of people were in the studies that looked at the effectiveness of transglutaminase 2, transglutaminase 2. 
only the people that have total villus atrophy. So the test, the studies show that the test is 100%, 97, 98, 100% accurate to identify celiac disease. But, but when you look at the studies that took a bigger picture, a bigger group of patients, those with partial villus atrophy and, or those with just inflammation, this, the accuracy of the test that the doctors do, and this is from the research papers, is anywhere from 27 to 33% which means mm. it's wrong seven out of ten times and says that there's no problem. It's called a false negative. So that's what the vast majority of the doctors in the country are using as they're testing for this. And if you try to talk to them about it, you, they, they think there's something wrong with you because they read the textbook that said 97 to 100% accurate. But no one clarified for them that the study group that was used was those that just had total villus atrophy. That's a really important point for your listeners to get, and I know I'm harping on it a little bit, but it'll save them so much grief if they just understand the, the uh, you have to do the right kind of test. And mm -hmm. the test for, with transglutaminase 2 is right on the money if you're at the end stage of villus atrophy. It's right on the money. But mm -hmm. uh, And the analogy that I give for that is, We've all had friends or family members or neighbors that had a heart attack and they survived and they came back and said, you know, the doctor said I had a heart attack before. I never knew I had a heart attack, but they could see mm -hmm. the damage to the heart from previous heart attacks, right? Um, most of us right. have heard that before. So if that were the norm, then you do blood tests to look for risk for cardiovascular disease. You say, no, oh, it doesn't matter if your cholesterol is 400 or 380. See, if I do a scan, there's no damage to your heart. So your, your your heart's fine. So people that don't have villus atrophy, the blood tests say they're fine. They, they're, there's no problem. And that's just mm -hmm. waiting for the end stage. So that's the current state across the country, is that people go to their doctor with the best of intent, and their doctor with the best of intent is doing the test that they've been taught to do. And mm -hmm. they don't realize that the study group was and it really wasn't cherry-picked. You know, this was very sincere looking at people with celiac. No one realized that the earlier stages can be just as devastating, and mortality is actually double if you don't have total villus atrophy, that you die early in life if you have just inflammation from gluten in your gut with no villus atrophy. The mortality is double that of those mm. with total villus atrophy, and doctors just don't know that. So that's the right. background. So what test do you do? The laboratory opened three years ago that looks at multiple peptides of gluten. I talked about this brick wall and breaking the brick wall. Uh, well, every laboratory in the country that looks for gluten sensitivity with or without celiac disease looks for the antibodies to the gluten peptide that's the 33 brick called alpha-gliadin. And they just look at the 33 brick. But papers started being published in 1999. Uh, we're over 20 years ago. 1999 saying, you know, there are multiple peptides to gluten, not just the 33 brick peptide. There are many. And 50% of the people react to the 33 brick, alpha gliadin, but the other 30, the other 50% do not. They react mm -hmm. to other peptides. Isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. But no laboratory has ever looked at any of the other peptides. I don't know why. It's you know, kind of like Grandma always cut her roast that way, mm -hmm. You know, if you know that story about Grandma. Um, right. Um, no one's ever looked. And so many people have had a blood test looking for celiac disease and gluten sensitivity, and it came back negative, and yet they know if they don't eat gluten, they feel better. That's called the conundrum right. of gluten testing. <laughs> Uh, and that's the conundrum, and that's why. It's because they've only looked at one of the peptides. So now the laboratory opened three years ago that looks at multiple peptides of gluten, and the lab is called Cyrex Lab, C-Y-R-E-X, CyrexLabs.com. I was a consultant that helped them in their opening. I'm not associated with them now, and actually Dr. Karazian also um, gave his opinion on what he thought some of the tests should be. So your guests next week had a really nice role to play with some of his um, informed um, opinions and and helping to uh, put together some of these tests. It was fabulous. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, 
so the tests that are out now are very comprehensive and right on the money. Uh, you don't get the false negatives anymore. Now, maybe one or two out of 20, perhaps, you know, when you know someone's gluten sensitive, it comes back negative. I'm scratching my head as to why. But usually we, we can find out. But that's the rare exception. Now, it's, it's uh, the vast majority of people don't get the false negatives anymore when they do Cyrex's array number three. And it's showing the alpha gliadin, the beta, the gamma, or sorry, the gamma, the, the omega. It's showing... Um, you know, the, the gluteomorphins and the deaminate and all the different kinds of gluten that someone could be reacting to that oftentimes are never tested by their doctor. So they go to their doctor, they have brain fog, they have anxiety, depression, all these symptoms. Maybe they've read about gluten in a, you know, nutrition magazine or something, and they say, hey, I really, with great intentions, they want to be tested for it. And the doctor's like, great, let's test it. And it's negative. And it's like, okay, well, it must be something else. And they go back to eating gluten, and they feel like crap, and they get put on medication. I mean, I know this is such a common thing that happens all the time. Exactly right. You're exactly right. That's a really nice summary. Nice way to bring it back down from my, you know, cerebral aspect of it, but really nicely done. Really nice. Yes, that's exactly what happens to so many people all the time. Yeah, or or you know, a mother is frustrated because her child has all these you know behavioral issues and and doesn't pay attention in school and has mood swings and temper tantrums and she's tried to dabble with the gluten free diet doesn't notice anything. In fact, maybe the kid gets worse right, because maybe he's actually addicted to it. <laughs> it's like just banging her head on the wall, like what the heck is going on? It's just not the right tests are being run. So you mentioned something about um, under two years old. So what's what's the, the difference with that with testing? Yeah, unfortunately, the blood tests, uh, they may show something, they may not, because the immune system in general has not developed adequately to give a um, clear message, usually. Mm-hmm. So w- with those children, the best that's available, as far as I know, uh, is the saliva test. Um, uh, a, a paper came out in January of 2011 where they looked at 5,000 children, uh, just screening 5,000 kids. I think they were aged 6 to 8 years old. And um, it may have been just 8 years old, not 6 to 8. I don't quite remember. It was a couple of years ago I read it. but <laughs> 5,000 kids. And they had them do a saliva test. And those, and they looked at transglutaminase 2, that's the one for total villus atrophy, and they looked for alpha-gliadin. That's the common one that every lab looks for in a blood test for mm-hmm. sensitivity to gluten. And every child that came back positive to those, they did a blood test on them, and 31 out of 32 kids that came back positive on the uh, saliva, 31 out of 32 came back positive on the blood. And of those, they did endoscopy on all of them, and 29 of them had villus atrophy already at 8 years old. And so the sensitivity of the saliva test was really good, right on the money. And their language was very clear. They said an accurate, inexpensive, thorough, comprehensive screening tool was the saliva uh, uh, looking for celiac disease. Now, it will identify gluten sensitivity also, but only if the child has the 33 brick it, it, because it's not looking at any of the other bricks. So right. it's accurate for celiac disease because of the transglutaminase that's there that's looking for to see if they've got villus atrophy. And it's partially accurate. Uh, if it comes back positive, it's truly positive for gluten sensitivity, but it's not comprehensive for gluten sensitivity. Okay, so if it's negative, they don't know for sure. You know, maybe wait until the kid's after two years old and you can do more testing, like with the blood test. So don't know for sure if it's negative, but if it's positive, okay, done deal. The child is sensitive to gluten or even has celiac, right? Exactly, exactly. Okay, awesome. Cool, so we have a couple callers here on the switchboard. Uh, first off, I'm going to take the caller from the 619 and the caller from 352. So caller from the 619, you are on Dr. Low Radio. What's your name and where are you calling from? Uh, good evening, Dr. Tom and Dr. Lowe. My name is Mike. I'm in San Diego. Hi, Hello, Mike. Mike. What's your question? Well, I was going to ask the good doctor about uh, actually multiple peptides and biomarkers for gluten sensitivity since there is some uh, differentiation in, in how certain labs or entities say that that actually exists and can be detected. But since he gave such a wonderful answer on that question, I would really like to hear more about cross-reactivity in other grains such as corn or oats and whatnot? Sure. 
that's not the theme of this particular show, but I'll give you a quick answer. And the answer is yes, there is. Um, with oats, when oats grow out of the ground, there's no toxic gluten in them. When you buy oats off the shelf, there's toxic gluten in them. And it's because of cross-contamination. The trucks that hauled the oats from the field to the manufacturing facility hauled wheat last week, and they don't clean the trucks. And uh, there have been studies done that looked at four different types of oats bought off the shelf three different times in a year, um, uh, so different batches of, of the same oats. And only of the 12 samples that were looked at, only two of them were free of contamination. The level is 20 parts per million or less is considered safe, and only two of them were less than 20 parts per million. Some of them, um, uh, Quaker, was 1,200 parts per million of gluten in it. I'm just totally toxic that anyone with gluten sensitivity would feel lousy eating the oats. So as far as we know, you're safe eating oats as long as they're gluten-free oats, and there are many companies that will look uh, very closely to make sure, and they put it on their label, and they're proud to do that. Uh, you, you can find them at Whole Foods or online, uh, gluten-free oats. Um, as far as we know, they're safe. Now, someone can be sensitive to oats. Um, someone can be sensitive to artichokes, you know, and so if they have a sensitivity to oats, they're going to react to oats. But in terms of its correlation with the toxic peptides of gluten in wheat, rarely, wheat barley, and rye, there's no correlation. Great, thank you. So, so it's a cross-contamination. Great. Thanks for your question, and Mike. The... Oops, sorry, I just muted you. Mike, did you have a, a follow-up question to that? Yeah, and perhaps I should not have in, included oats in my initial question um, and asked specifically about uh, persons um, who, react, who say they react to other grains uh, in a similar way uh, to gluten. You bet. Um, once someone has a sensitivity to gluten, their immune system is hypervigilant. Uh, you know, it's kind of like if you keep being jabbed by the, the kid behind you and you're, you know, you're sitting in the movie theater and you keep, you know, he keeps kicking the uh, chair, um, it's hard to relax and watch the movie. And after a while, you know, someone may just turn around and say, you know, would you mind or something. Uh, uh, that we, we get hypervigilant. And when your immune system is has been reacting for years to a particular food because it's being fed to it day after day after day after day and you've got a gluten sensitivity with or without celiac disease, your immune reaction to other foods that you may be sensitive to can be overreactive because the system has – my good friend Dr. Mark Houston says it – he says it so beautifully. I like to give him credit for this every every time I quote it, and that is that uh, the body has a limited number of responses to an unlimited number of insults. So there's only a certain number of ways that our body can respond, the immune system can respond, and when it's on overdrive, fighting gluten, fighting gluten, fighting gluten, it gets hyperreactive, and you can have an a, uh, overreaction to uh, something that you really aren't that sensitive to. That's one answer. The second answer is there is true cross-reactivity where... Uh, what the immunologists tell us is, you know, proteins are made up of amino acids, and there are hundreds of amino acids long in different sequences, and it's like A, A, B, C, D, E, E, A, A, B. Um, every protein, the amino acid sequences are different. But what immun immunologists tell us, it only takes eight amino acids in sequence identical to the eight amino acids that your body is making antibodies to. So if it's the 33 brick, the 33 amino acid alpha-gliadin, and eight of those amino acids are in sequence the same in couscous, and I'm just using that as an example, in couscous, your body can react to couscous. Or if it's in TEF, your body can react to TEF if it's the same eight amino acids in sequence. Mm -hmm. And that's been uh, proven. I've, I've read a couple, three articles on that. That's just basic immunology, how that cross-reactivity can occur. So then you, and you're hypervigilant, so you eat TEF in this example, and your body makes more antibodies to gluten. Which is what causes the damage. Exactly, exactly. So that's the cross-reactivity. Thank you, and sir. I'm, I'm sorry, Dr. Lowe, that, that was not a short answer. No, it was good. It was brilliant, brilliantly stated. Thanks for your question, Mike. You bet. Good night. 
Okay, next caller from the 352. You're calling Dr. Low Radio. What's your name and what's your question? Hi, I'm Barbara from Gainesville, Florida. Thank you for a very informative show. Uh, I'm wondering if gluten can cause tremors in a yes. person. And yes. if so, is that something that a gluten-free diet could minimize or even reverse, or is the damage to the nervous system usually permanent from gluten? Oh, that's a really good question, really good question. And the answer is yes, You um, gluten may be associated with any brain condition, including tremors, any brain condition. And with okay. tremors, it's... Um, um, uh, it can be as there are some papers talking about um, with ticks, um, how it can help with that. With uh, Tourette's, how a uh, gluten-free diet can help in Tourette's. I mean, the list goes on and on. In some cases, there's no way to predict who's going to respond well and who is not going to respond well to a uh, to trying a gluten-free diet. You know, there's no way to tell, but. Actually, excuse me, let me take that back. The way you tell is by doing the test. And if the antibodies are elevated, then in order to cut down the inflammation that is likely contributing to the uh, brain symptom that you're talking about, which is tremors, you must reduce the inflammation. You must go on an anti-inflammatory lifestyle or take anti-inflammatory drugs, which I do not recommend, but that's the premise behind the anti-inflammatory drugs is to try and cut down the inflammation. And why it misses the boat sometimes is because people are still eating their ding-dongs and ho-hos. And they're taking they're taking um, medication, which is really helpful sometimes, but uh, they're still throwing gasoline on the fire. And uh, if you were to go to PubMed, and that's PubMed, stands for Public Medical Information, pubmed.gov, and you type in the search engine tremors and celiac disease, there's 12 studies that come up that talk about tremors in celiac disease. So, yes, and can it be reversed? Depends on the individual and how, how um, uh, uh, thorough your doctor is in putting them in an, into an anti-inflammatory state. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks Thank for your you. question, Barbara. All right, we got a caller from the 415. 415, thank you for calling Dr. Low Radio. What's your name and where are you calling from? 415, thank you for calling Dr. Low Radio. What's your name and where are you calling from? Hello, my name is Carol. Hey, Carol. Hi, Carol. Hi. Um, thank you for um, doing the show, it's really informative. Sure. Um, I um, have Graves' disease. Um, it runs in my family. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You have what? Graves' disease. It's a Graves', Graves disease. Yes. Okay. Yes. 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 It runs in my family, but my Graves has now turned into Hashimoto's. Yes. And I recently did um, the Cyrex lab test and found that I'm gluten intolerant. Yes. Congratulations. Uh, I'm one, yeah, I'm one of those who have absolutely no digestive symptoms um, except my thyroid. So my question is, um, if I continue to avoid gluten, um, is it possible that one day I won't have this autoimmune disease? I understand the question. It's a very good question. And in the all-day seminars that I give to doctors, um, on this topic, we have many studies that show arresting or stopping the um, Graves or the Hashimoto, stopping thyroid autoimmune disease and sometimes reversing it. And so the antibodies go down and eventually go away. Yes, it is possible. Now, stopping the gluten-free diet is the first step. It's the prerequisite. It just gets you in the ball game. It's not the answer. Um, when you've had a condition like your condition for a length of time, there's been a lot of damage that's been done, and you've got to try to reduce some of the damage and help your body to function better. That's why you need to see a good nutritionist, um, a registered dietitian, a doctor who's trained in this and knows how to help uh, with with the bigger picture. Now, 
Hmm. Uh, Dr. Lowe, if it's okay, I'd like to reference the CGPs here. Is that okay? Sure. Oh, yeah. yeah. Thank um, you. Actually, I, I'm a nutritionist, and I'm interested in becoming a CGP. Okay, good. Well, you already know about it, so that's wonderful. You're 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 welcome to reach out. Okay, but you can tell us more. <laughs> uh, you 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 need to find uh, a doctor or practitioner that has the big picture, and just works down the checklist of what to do to help to rebuild your function, your thyroid receptor sites, your your tissue to calm down the inflammation. Uh, there's a world of things that need to be done for this. The first step, though, is stop throwing gasoline on the fire, and it sounds like you're doing that already. And congratulations to you for that. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for your question, Carol. Oh, Dr. O'Brien, why did the time fly so quickly? I feel like we just started having fun. It's already 7 o'clock. I know. Um, hey, are any any uh, parting words? Anything about anything about this topic you really wanted to cover tonight um, that we didn't touch on? Yeah, there's one. Thank you. There's just one, and that is that uh, children diagnosed with celiac disease has, have a threefold increased risk of dying early in life compared to children that don't have celiac disease. Now that means they're three hundred percent more likely to die of diabetes, heart disease, cancer early in life. Now, that's with or without a gluten-free diet. The gluten-free diet is not a sure cure-all. It's the prerequisite and first step that gets you in the door. Uh, You've got to do more than just that. You have to do more. And so finding a practitioner that knows about the Cyrex test, uh, finding a practitioner that knows how to work in detail, like Dr. Lowe, if you're in the Southern California area, uh, around the country, our website is the dr.com, the doctor.com, and we have uh, about 300 practitioners now listed on the website who have gone through some training with me and passed the tests. So find someone that knows about this, that knows about Cyrex, and get started. I, I guess mm. those are my parting words because that's why children are dying. Mm-hmm. Even on a gluten-free diet, they're dying because the doctors don't know how to be comprehensive with this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a public service announcement, really. I mean, it's it's a really big deal. So many kids are being affected by it, and so many parents are just so frustrated. And it's such a huge answer to their to their problems. So thank you so much for what you do and spreading the word. And you're just such a such a a, a godsend for so many people. So thank you. No, Dr. Lowe, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, it's always a pleasure to to uh, uh, be with you on your show, and uh, you're such a great person. You're a great doc, and uh, I respect you so much, and thank you for the opportunity. Thanks, Doc. So, hey, so our yeah. listeners who want to learn more about you, it's it's thedoctor.com, right? T-H-E-G-R.com. Yes. Correct. Awesome. That is Have correct. a wonderful night. Enjoy your evening, and we'll talk to you soon. Yes, thank you. Okay. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, you guys, that's the show. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much for all the callers. Let's see, who are our callers? We had Mike and Barbara and Carol. Thanks for your questions. Thanks for a lot of the Facebook questions. Hey, for a lot of you guys who asked the Facebook questions, your questions were actually answered in some of the other parts of the show. So I didn't ask them specifically, but I I looked through the questions, and I think um, your uh, specific ones were actually answered. So hopefully they were. If not, shoot me an email, and we'll get things figured out. Um, Really hope you guys got a lot out of the show. I work with patients here in San Diego and all over the country. So definitely look me up if you're looking for having these tests done. Please, please, please don't wait on it. Get these tests done. You can save a lot of of heartache, Um, a lot of just suffering for yourself to really get some of these answers. So check me out, drlaurennoel.com. That's D-R-L-A-U-R-E-N-N-O-E-L.com if you have any questions about it. And uh, next week's show, we're going to continue the brain conversation with Dr. Datis Karazian. Um, He is the author of the new book, Why Isn't My Brain Working?, Uh, He also wrote the book, Why Do I Still Have Thyroid Symptoms When My Lab Tests Are Normal, which is the number one selling thyroid book on Amazon since 2009. It's just a phenomenal book. And um, we're going to be deepening this conversation about the brain and giving you just some some really great tips of what you can do. So tune in to next week's show. That will be Tuesday at 6 p.m. Have a wonderful, wonderful week, and I will catch you guys on the airways next week. All right, take care. Bye.
North Pole Hotline. Help! My in-laws are hosting Thanksgiving, and we're bringing the dressing. You mean stuffing? No, dressing. I need cute outfits for everyone. Get to Old Navy. Old Navy? Yep, Old Navy's kicking off the holidays with stylish denim, velvet tops, the season's best dresses, and 40% off your entire purchase now through Tuesday. 40% off? We'll be stuffing our shopping bags full. And don't forget colorful sweaters and amazing outerwear, too. You can even buy online and pick up in store for free. Ooh, I love an all-you-can-wear buffet. Holiday your heart out at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1118 to 1120. Exclusions apply. See stores for details. North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's giving $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to boys and girls clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10.